are going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. So if you have those Bibles, why don't you pull them out and turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardbacked black one on the pew rack in front of you. And in that Bible, we're on page 1227. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 3. As you turn there, I want to try and kind of bring us up to speed in where we've been in 1 John thus far. We've begun the series entitled The Uncommon Community, which is trying to get underneath our sort of accepted surface-level communal fellowship that we find ourselves in to expose the sort of underworkings, the guts, the distinctive uncommon characteristics that we have as a community in this world amongst many other communities. I'm sure that many of you are involved in many of them. You have gardening clubs, extended families, work communities, peer groups, football clubs. You have rugby clubs. You have cricket clubs. I almost forgot that. Friend groups. And yet this community, made up of brothers and sisters, is distinct. It has uncommon characteristics. We're a set-apart people. But how? How exactly? That is a question we're trying to answer with this series, Uncommon Community. We've been exploring the world of the first century by looking at this letter, or better, this poetic sermon that the Apostle John is writing to a struggling church, most likely in the city of Ephesus. Now, this church has recently undergone a troubling season, as many have left the church. As John says in chapter 2, they have gone out from us, claim to have a different understanding of who Jesus is, And what he was all about. You see, the church is being encircled by these pagan theologies and Greek philosophies. Particularly, though, scholars argue that the major threat that these false teachers and defectors were proposing was a precursor to what we call Gnosticism. James mentioned last week this idea that Jesus has come primarily as this divine teacher who imparts divine knowledge. In the Greek, it's gnosis, where we get knowledge, thus Gnosticism. It's all about knowledge. And if that's the case, that it's only about the realm of the mind, that means that the realm of the body doesn't really have any eternal significance, which means sin is no longer a personal offense to God, towards other people. Sin, by that means, is just ignorance. And you can overcome sin by just learning a bit more. Forget obedience. Forget holiness and repentance. Eternal life is just an immaterial concept, is what they said. Well, it's against this that John writes, which breeds a sort of we-can-do-whatever-we-want-to-do mentality. And we saw two weeks ago that Jesus is actually a real person, and he's a human. In the very first verse of chapter 1, it says, "...that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and seen with our eyes and touched with our hands." Jesus is the real embodied God in whose salvation is not simply a gift of divine knowledge that he imparts to you. Rather, salvation is a divine fellowship he invites you into. Salvation is a fellowship he welcomes us into. And last week, we saw this uncommon community that we find ourselves in gathered around Jesus walks in the light. Part of living in fellowship with God means that we necessarily walk in the light because God is in the light. We walk in the light. And we said that what that means is that we walk on this sort of knife edge where we see the seriousness of our sin while at the same time seeing the sufficiency of our Savior. That seeing those two things together is what helps us walk in the light. 
And to be saved, John argues, is, not, is to live in the fellowship and experience the saving grace of God within a community of persons who are on this journey together following the light of Jesus. Now, that sounds really clean. It sounds tidy. It sounds helpful. But many of you who've been around church for a while will know it's not that clean. It's not that tidy, and it's definitely not that glamorous. Trust me, if you're new here, we are so glad you're here. But don't think that we are perfect. I promise you, we will let you down very, very quickly. Living in this uncommon community is messy. It takes a lot of wisdom. It's challenging. There's this vulnerability, which means that people can get hurt. It's hard to live in this tension of seeing your sin and the sufficiency of Jesus. Who wants to know someone else's sin? Who wants to display their lack of pride and humility? Who wants to actually embody showing Jesus' sufficiency? Who wants to be humbled in front of everyone else? It's hard. Now, this small first-century community in Ephesus, who had just experienced something like a church split, knows this difficulty. And for them, it's really, really tempting to kind of look at those who left them, their friends, maybe even the sharpest of their community who left, and think, man, you know what? Those guys, they over there, they have a much more clean and simple and easy way of following Jesus. You don't have to call people out of sin. People just are free to do whatever they want. You can be tolerant of everything. If we could just focus on our knowledge of God and just let the rest go, maybe that's the way. I mean, is walking in the revealing light of Jesus really the way to know the only God? If we're honest, it doesn't always seem to be like it's the way of God. It's too mundane. It's too messy. Now, one of my favorite parts of living in Suffolk is the sort of twisty, twisting country roads that I get to drive down every day. Um, much to your surprise, we didn't have those in Liverpool, actually, these beautiful twisting roads. Um, and Emily and I have started taking these evening drives as the sun kind of stays out a little bit later, and we love it. Our favorite drive is to go down through Hardest, and then around Long Melford and back up through Lavin, and we just love it. But when we first arrived in England, navigating around England, and around, especially on this area, was a complete mystery to us. I often find myself asking for directions on how to get places, um, but we were brand new, and the thing is, oftentimes, navigation around here is through landmarks. The thing is, I don't know any landmarks, so they say, oh, where do you want to go? Oh, head towards Baton. I don't know where Baton is. <laughs> okay, okay, I, I will get you there. All right, so you just need to head towards the White Horse Pub, or, I don't know, the Green Goose, the Golden Donkey, whatever pub it is. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know what pub you're talking about. And I'll say, all right, well, can you tell me what street name, which turns I take? Well, I, I actually don't know the street names around here. What, what? How do you not know the street names? Okay, can you tell me the address? Oh, you know, it's, it's the Sunflower House. It's like, how am I, how, what am I supposed to work with there? But can you give me the postcode? This beautiful, clean, six-digit number where I can pop into the satin ever, Google Maps, and then have this very reassuring blue arrow and blue line that says, this is the way to go. Because surprisingly, somehow, I wouldn't imagine that this small, dark, tiny lane would get me to where I wanted to go. If you'd given me an option at the junction back there, I would have never guessed that this small, tiny road that doesn't look, made, like, look like it's made for a car is the way I'm supposed to go. Do you know that feeling after you've been driving a while and you think, did I miss my exit? Should I have gotten off? It's like 10 minutes. I don't recognize anything. You should have gotten, 10 minutes, gotten off the last exit 10 minutes ago. Well, that's me all the time in Suffolk, all the time. But that little blue arrow kind of reassures me that much to my surprise, that this is the right way, not that way. And John is writing to this small, struggling church, as many have departed and turned off, 
at the last exit, who are getting a bit worried whether they're still on the right path, whether they're still going the right way. Now, I know we're not in the first century, but I'm sure many of us, nonetheless, might have that nagging feeling, are we still going the right way? At a national scale across the country, churches seem to be closing their doors, communities like ours. Socially, many of our friends outside of this community seem to be getting on just fine. And personally, many of you have been at this for a long time. You might become disillusioned by this difficult way of living with people in a church community. And you're curious whether this demanding Christian life is really changing you. Is there a cleaner, simpler option? I was listening to a radio program um, last week that was covering the poison control hotline in the United States. Now, I didn't even know a poison control hotline existed, but it does in the States. And there's something very similar in the UK. But basically, it's a hotline where a trained professional in toxicology, biology, and chemistry is just waiting for your call 24-7 every day of the year. You just call this number and someone will be able to tell you whatever you want to know about poison. Now, that's interesting because... In our modern age, we don't have that, really. And so this radio show was talking about this woman who had a toddler, and she fell asleep while she was taking care of the toddler, and the toddler had eaten an entire tube of uh, nappy ointment cream. And the, the child was crying. She woke up. She saw this tube and a whole bunch of chemicals. She had no idea what were. She didn't know what to do. And I'm sure I don't have a child, but I know that they eat everything. And so that might be true of some of you that there's this feeling of helplessness, this sinking feeling, and you start to sweat. You're wondering, is this tearing apart my child's stomach lining? What's going on? And then there's that number. And so she called the number, and within five minutes, a woman picked up and said, okay, what's on the back? What are the chemicals? What size is the child? You know what? You're going to be okay. Just give the child some water, and you should, the pain will pass in a little bit, and they will be totally fine. Now, She said that was one of the most relieving moments of her life, and having that hotline there. The thing is, over the past year, this poison control hotline um, has been considering moving towards a web form where you just type in the symptoms and it tells you. But there's been so much opposition from people like this woman because what you need to hear in those moments is a human voice of assurance saying, it's going to be okay. There's moments of worry and panic and anxiety. There's no... There's an inestimable amount of value of human assurance. It cannot be underemphasized in those moments of worry of a voice saying, it's going to be all right. Similarly, John is writing as this experienced elder who knows Jesus, who knows this church, who knows the troubles they're facing, and he stills their hearts and assures them that the poison is outside of the body, that they can and do know the Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. Their communal life, as fractured as it might be, still embodies this Christ-like fidelity. It really is an uncommon community amongst, amongst all the other communities. So his aim today is to assure the anxious, but also to call out the complacent. And to do that like a guide, he reminds them that they can know Jesus if they follow the light, if they continue on the way they've been going. So church family, uncommon community, we're going back to the basics this morning. Whether you've been here your whole life or this is your first week, whether you're filled with doubt or you're bursting at the seams with excitement, John is telling us this, continue to follow where the light leads. It's down one way, and we're going to look at three perspectives on that way. It's the same old way, it is the new revealed way, and it is the well-known way. 
follow where the light leads, down the same old way, the new revealed way, and the well-known way. So let's unpack what that means. So first, the same old way. Would you read verses 3 to 7 with me? Starting in verse 3, it says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, I think there are a few other words that leave such a distaste in our modern mouths in the word commandments. Oh, it just doesn't even ring well, commandment. It sounds old. It feels kind of old. It feels dusty and outdated and archaic. Even in Christian circles, I think it's kind of similar to like cough syrup. You know, just kind of plug your nose and down it in one go. Commandments. Ugh. We would far prefer to talk about sort of abstract theology than rigid demands on our life. Most of us picture that famous image of Moses holding these perfect two tablets with numbers one to ten perfectly with his beard flowing in the wind. I know when I think about I think about chores and Saturdays and tasks, taking out the trash, cutting the grass, vacuuming the carpet. Miserable. It might remind you of learning how to be polite as a child, to sit up straight, don't lie, listen to your parents. And it just goes on. I often meet people who've grown up in conservative churches and families where obedience and righteousness were pounded home so often that they've been pushed aside as vehicles of death and suffocation. That's what commandments are. Or maybe commandments sound so off-key, so outdated, so out of fashion because it goes against the grain of everything we hold dear in our modern world, that you are your own person, that you decide for yourself what's right. You know, just be your authentic self. Make up your own rules for your own life. Well, there's a very similar sentiment in the first century. You know, do whatever you please. Just make sure that you're thinking rightly about God. Remember, the false teachers had this abstracted view of Jesus. Jesus was only the divine teacher that you meditated on. He wasn't an embodied human who showed you how to live in this messy, confusing world. This streak of Gnostic philosophy ensured that you could have this beautiful mental relationship with Jesus while a completely disconnected life from him. John is telling this small, struggling church that the way that they can know that they know Jesus is if they keep his commandments. For John, keeping the commandments is the assuring way that you know that you actually know Jesus. That sounds scandalous. Even for us as Christians. I mean, how dare I suggest that if you're not keeping God's commands, then you don't know Jesus. I mean, you don't know me. I don't know you. But in fact, that's precisely the point John's saying. He knows whether you know Jesus if you keep his commandments. It might sound oppressive. It might sound overburdening. But if we think through and redeem this word, commandment, I think we might agree with John by the end of this. And think not of commands as a lock and chain, but as a key that sets us free. So let's talk about this same old way of keeping God's commandments. So first, is John saying that the only way that you can know God for sure is if you are a perfect person who perfectly obeys all the commandments? No, he's not saying that. Take a look at verse 3. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him 
if we keep his commandments. It doesn't say obey. Notice what it says, keep. Now, in the original language, this word keep carries the notion of guardianship or protection or care. It's like saying that you care and keep your family or you upkeep your garden. It's to recognize something as precious and to hold it close to you. Now, as many of you know, I love photography, especially old film photography, and so I collect lots of old film cameras, and oftentimes on a free evening, I'll be sitting at my desk and look over and see the cameras there, pick one up, play with it a little bit, take off the lens, start cleaning it, and then all of a sudden, I'm taking out the whole cupboard, laying it all out on the ground, putting all the pieces where I want them, and we walks in, oh, here he goes with the cameras again, everything laid out, and I'm sure it's, like, it's like I'm a child with his toys. I'm, I'm sure many of your ch- children do this. I'm sure many of you do this, whether it be staring at all your books on your bookshelf and taking out a little bit, looking, putting it back, checking that out, taking out your jewelry, cleaning it. I don't know what it is. I know a lot of men, uh, a lot of men who have old cars who spend hours cleaning and waxing a perfectly clean car. Open the hood, check the oil, even though you checked it yesterday. Because why? We, we treasure these things. When I first came to England, James walked me around his beloved garden. And I followed him around, not knowing anything about plants, or not caring. Um, but he was so passionate about showing me, oh, the foxgloves and the honeysuckles and the roses and the clematis. But then I got a house with a back garden. <laughs> and after playing my own plants, I wake up each morning with my cup of coffee, inspect how the sunflowers are doing, how's the ranunculus, tomatoes, the strawberry, the fuchsia, water them, make sure they're getting on okay, maybe move some pots so they're more in the sun. You get the point. I'm keeping my garden. To keep his commandments means to cultivate them in your heart, to treasure them up and protect them, to guard them. Because these commandments are from the maker of heaven and earth. Do you treasure God's commands? I'm sure many of you do, but I'm sure there's many of us who have become lazy in the gardens of our souls and need to be reminded to the need to protect them in our lives. John is not saying that only perfect people know Jesus. He's saying that the people who know Jesus, not just know about Jesus, but know him personally, treasure up and keep, protect his commands. Why? Well, as John says, in those people, God's love is perfected and they abide in him. Look at verse 5. It says, but, ever, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, as John is saying that God's love is sort of not quite there, it's lacking a bit, we need to kind of help God fill up the glass on his love, not quite. God's love for us already is full and is already complete. What he means by perfected is that his love, his love in giving us his commands has its intended consequence. Or in other words, the fulfilling outcome of his love, the fulfilling outcome of his love is that we are changed to look like him. That's the means and the goal, what's behind the commandment and his love. The reason he gives this, these commands and loves us is to free us from this unhelpful, death-bringing, sin-creating way of living in this world to a life-giving, love-saturated, others-focused way of being in this world. God's not some oppressive tyrant who just wants your cold obedience. It is a love-motivated call to life. And keeping his commands, his love, is having the effect that he intends much to our surprise, commandments from the all-loving God who made you and who knows you are not to oppress you, but to make you into the person you are meant to be in this world, a person that looks and talks and acts like Jesus. 
Take the Exodus story, for example, right? When, when God gives the Ten Commandments at Sinai, he's not oppressing them. He's freeing them. We forget, we forget that for decades, these Israelites had lived under Pharaoh, an actual oppressive tyrant who commanded them to make bricks to build his empire. They've been living and acting in a mode of slavery for decades. So by the time they cross the Red Sea and they get into the desert at Mount Sinai, they already want to go back to Egypt, go back to the oppressive way of living. And yet God gives them his commandments that show his people what he's like, a way towards freedom, to love the widow and the orphan and the poor, to have mercy on each other, to rest, to take a Sabbath. You see, the problem for the Israelites and ourselves is that we still have this oppressive slave-like mentality that needs to be beat out of us. And God is trying to show us that there actually is a way to live in this world that's life-giving. Not very many people will say there's actually a way to live in this world that's life-giving. There is a way. And it's good news that daily as we fight to keep God's commands, we are being transformed into the people who were created to be. You are not being stifled. Your desires are not being restricted, but rather they're being enlarged and they're being redirected to what really matters in this world, to love people and to love God. Ultimately, John says, if you understand that, right? If you understand that God's commands are meant to perfect his love in you, then you recognize who God really is. He's not a tyrant. He's not an abstraction who just wants, who only cares about what you think. He is Jesus Christ who wants to show you life. Far from what culture tells you, that everything is trying to enslave you, the truth is we're slaves to ourselves. And God's commandments are showing us how to be free. There's a tendency to forget to consistently guard God's commands in our hearts. That's largely because we think his commands are like the commands of our culture that turn us into machines and depersonalize us. But John wants to make sure that this uncommon community knows that God's love is perfected in us when we treasure and guard up his commands This is not legalism. This is sanctification. So quickly, before we move on, for those who feel they have some soul tending to do and need to regard God's commands highly, how do we do it? Well, quickly, two points before moving on. Number one, look at how Jesus walked. Look at how Jesus walked. The point of John saying this is not to just try harder to obey God's commands. It's to recognize and love God's commands. And the way you do that is not by trying harder. It's to be all consumed by Jesus. Most people in the world, whether atheists, agnostics, agnostics, people from other religions who maybe do not like Christianity in the church, will still recognize there's something compelling about Jesus. He doesn't fit into these perfect categorized boxes. He's always loving, yet he's commanding. He's comforting, yet he's rebuking. You see, the key to cultivating a desire for the commands is to look at him. As John says, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So simply put, look at how he walks. So practically sit down sometime this week and read a portion of the Gospels. Sit down, cultivate, keep, treasure, protect. See the beauty of Jesus and his love for us. Secondly, recognize that his commands do not enslave, but liberates us to be the people we're meant to be. A person that looks like Jesus It's like going to an amusement park. You get your ticket, you walk into the amusement park, and you're waving around, I made it, I made it. You don't want to go on any of the rides. You're just standing there. You're not going to go on. But don't you realize he saved you to look like him? I know that's scary to look at, but it's worthwhile, and it's life-giving. 
get on the ride. You can know Jesus by walking in the light and following the same old way. Keep his commandments. Regard them, treasure them. But it is not only an old way, it is a new revealed way. So let's take a look at verses 8 to 11. Would you read verses 8 to 11 with me? It says this, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So John says this commandment is old, but it's also new. And the new commandment is that we love one another in the light. Now, love is potentially the most slippery word in the English language. So John clarifies what's so distinctive about this new commandment to love one another. Because it doesn't seem that new, does it? I mean, love one another. Everyone says that. But to love in a truly uncommon way, new and revealed way, is to love people in the light. That means that love is not just a politeness or a pleasantry or kindness. To love like John wants his church to love means that we love people with the light, meaning with the full force of the gospel. This way of loving people is new in the sense that Jesus has come as this definitive mark of what love is. Even in the Old Testament, there was the two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But in the 13th chapter of John's gospel, he quotes Jesus saying, a new commandment I give you, that you live, love one another as I have loved you. That means that love, when we think about love, for us as Christians, it can only ever be defined in reference to Jesus. It can never be defined outside of Jesus because he is the fulfillment and the embodiment of love so much that we have to speak about it as if it's a whole new commandment. As John says, the darkness is passing away and the light is coming and it's shining in small, uncommon communities like this. Therefore, in our uncommon community, we love each other, but that doesn't just mean that we like each other, that we get along, that we, or even that we just care for one another. It means we live and we love in an uncommon way. You see, to, the new revealed way is to love the brothers and the sisters. So what does that look like? Quickly, it means this. It means that to love is qualified by God's light. Love is qualified by God's light. You'll notice that John connects love with walking in the light. In verse 9, he says that the one who loves the brothers abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That means that To love in this uncommon way is to consider how my actions either cause or relieve someone else from sin. The way to love in this community is to consider how my actions either cause or relieve someone else from sin. Love for John is a concern for the other's walk with the Lord. For John, love is the vehicle whereby we gather together communally and continually see that seriousness of our sin and the sufficiency of our Savior. That's love. To love in this community is to continually point people to Jesus. So practically, practically, if you're chatting with someone who's sort of belittling sin or gossiping and neglecting to keep and love God's commands that are meant to free them, then the way you love that person is not by just letting it go, but with wisdom, make sure you don't block the light of Jesus by downplaying sin. Don't block the light. 
It's your job in every every interaction you have with people to consider how can I show this person more of Jesus? Because if he is the light, and if he calls us to walk in the freedom of the light, the most loving thing you can do for that person is show them the light. Contrary to what our culture says, love is not tolerance. Love is pointing to every person you meet to, pointing them to Jesus in a specific and unique way for that person. And I'm not saying that we need to go out of here and tell people how to live. I'm just saying that with love within this community is directed towards seeing each other look more like Jesus. If you're talking with someone after the service, again, practically, and they say, oh, you know, I'm really stressed out, anxious, it's been a hard week. And they say, but, oh, well, you know, life goes on, just carry on. Don't be quiet and just nod and say, yeah, yeah, and move along. Speak up. Remind them of the sufficiency of our Savior. Love them in the light. Pray with them. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said, I've just been having this hard, hard time. And then on a Sunday morning, so-and-so just prayed for me on the spot. And it carried me throughout the rest of the week. That's our call in this community. Love people with and in the light. This uncommon community is to be defined not by love that is watery and thin, but a love that rebukes and loves and prays and is vulnerable and calls people, come more into the light. Look at Jesus. His love can hardly be categorized, right? He rebukes and he comforts, he prays, he challenges, he weeps, and it's all love. I'm sure many of you want more specifics. I haven't given you a list of commands for the first point. I'm not exactly telling you how to actually love people in church family. And you're right, I haven't. I don't think I can very well. That's because love is the most context-specific act in the entire spectrum of human behavior. There's no other single human act more dependent on and immersed in a specific context. A dictionary is nearly worthless when trying to understand and practice love. Acts of love cannot be canned and taken off the shelf. Every act of love requires a creative, personal giving, responding, and serving appropriate to that person in that context. And I don't know what person you're sitting next to and what context they're in. To love in a way that is thoughtful and considered, that looks into other people's eyes, completely focused and desiring their good in a specific context, that is our job. That is the one commandment. Why? Because he first loved us. And if we're honest, that is the most important thing we have to do in this world. Love, but not just any love, love that directs people into the light. A love that is self-forgetful and bottomless. A love that is so outward-focused that doesn't have a limit, nor does it think about itself in the act of love. Can you imagine a community so convicted by that one commandment? Can you imagine a community that is so joyfully driven to love people in the light? Many of you do know that community. The church community, while often disappointing and difficult, is the place where many of you have encountered this love. The love that knows you well enough to call you deeper into holiness. The love that stops on the spot to pray for you. The love that gives and gives and wants nothing in return. The love that is so concerned for each other that you feel safe and secure, that you have a second family. That's an uncommon community in this world. I can guarantee that. You know it. Yes, you can become disillusioned with church life. Trust me, I know. But just stop for a moment and consider this moment. We're all sitting here because we're united by our love for this man, Jesus. And the people sitting around you are here because they want to know how to love you in a way 
that Jesus loves you. This is not like anything else in the world. You can know that you know Jesus. John says, rest assured. Stay on the same old way. Keep his commandments, which is the new revealed way of loving your brothers and sisters in the light. Because finally, and I'm going to end with this, it is the well-known way. So let's read verses 12 to 14. So in verse 12, it says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. After assuring this church that they don't have to be worried, that they aren't following God, that they know God, if they treasure his commands and love each other with this light-filled love, John reminds them that while they know, while they know God, he knows them even better. John recites this sort of poetic song with three different stages, children, young men, and fathers, in order to figuratively speak and encourage every level of Christian, wherever you are this morning, for those of you who just entered this uncommon community, for those of you who feel excited and empowered, for those of you who've been here a long time, know that your sins are forgiven. You are known by him who is from the beginning, and you've overcome the evil one. This is the climax of this assurance John gives this uncommon community who wonders, are we still going the right way? Yes, you are. Even if you feel that you need to recultivate your love for God's commands and reassert your love for the church family, you can rest knowing that the path you're on, this path of a messy, tiring, long walk in the light, is led by the God who knows you and loves you. This is what it's all about, being known by God, loved as his child, sharing in his victory. No, you are known. We've already seen two shining examples of this this morning. In welcoming Ellie and Erica, Zach and Elizabeth in church membership, they're effectively saying, I want this church community to look out for me. I want to walk in the light in all the messiness that entails alongside each of you. I want you to look out for me when I drift, call me back. When I stumble in darkness, show me the light. When I go off the radar, pursue me. When I struggle, show me Jesus. We're in this together and we're known by God and it is our duty to spend the rest of our lives abiding in him together, keeping his commands, loving each other, and being known by him all the days of our lives. As Chris was just baptized, he was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As he went down into the waters, it signified his union with Jesus in his death, and when he came back up, his union with Jesus in his resurrection. So now Chris belongs to Jesus, and he is welcomed into the triune community of God, so much so that when God looks down on him, He sees his son through the lens of Jesus. So when he looks at Chris, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when he looks down on you, he says, I know you. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. We are baptized into Jesus, known perfectly. And that means that we not only have fellowship with God, but with each other. We are his body, brothers and sisters, and is now our uncommon, joy-filled responsibility to everything we can to make sure we speak that truth into the life of this community, into the person's life sitting next to you, because that's what matters most. Brothers and sisters, beloved and known by God, you're going the right way. Keep going. Keep the commandments. Treasure them up. Keep your eyes on Jesus who leads you. 
love one another by shining the light of Jesus intentionally with wisdom and care into each other's lives. And please, be intentional about it. And finally, rest in the assurance that you are known by the God of heaven and earth. You belong to him. and You belong in this uncommon community. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. You know this. These are the basics. Nothing new, but that's precisely the point. John doesn't want to give in to the Gnostic tendency to just give us a nice new thought, a new piece of information that will satisfy us. No. He wants us to stay in the path that we already know. And that is more demanding. Take what you know and press it deeply into your life, into your words, into your obedience, into your time, and into your existence in this uncommon community. You can have assurance that you know where the light is leading. Keep following him. Keep following the light in this uncommon community. Would you pray with me? Close. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you can reassure us when, for those of us who are having difficult times, for those of us who are confident in our walk with you, would you please help us, fathers, stay on the path to abide in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask as we watch him walk ahead of us that we are so awe-filled that we want to keep his commandments, to walk as he walked, to love and live and act and speak like he did. We ask for the strength to do that. We ask, Lord, that you would cultivate a love in our hearts for each other. Please, please help our love not be thin, but light-filled. Teach us how to lovingly care for each other and point us, point each other to Jesus. And Father, please let us rest assured that you look down on us and say, this, these are my beloved children in this uncommon community. Strengthen us and guide us. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.